Go ahead and grab your Bibles while you're standing there. And open your Bible to John chapter 1. And the message starts right now because as we step into the gospel of John for a season, I want this posture to be the posture in which we approach God's word. Uh, Worship doesn't stop when we stop singing, by the way. Worship continues as we open the word of God and as we devote ourselves to the teaching and the preaching of God's word and the prayers of the saints. But John writes this glorious good news that we'll start today. And he writes from a heavenly point of view because he wants our minds and our souls to be captivated with the things of Christ that get us above the noise of this world and get our attention on the place of that song we just sang, Pure Exaltation, where all of our attention is given to Christ, the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. So every eye on a copy of God's Word John chapter 1. Now hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light and all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This Was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. Father. We come honoring the name of Jesus in this place today. We come to seek no other name, no other thing, no other fame than the glory and the renown of Christ. So Lord, we want to give you pure exaltation. We want to give you all of our attention. And just as you, God, have exalted your word We come paying careful attention to your word today out of reverence for you. We seek you that we might find you 
Lord, just as Jesus proclaimed, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things would be added to us. Lord, we come seeking your kingdom today. We come exalting Jesus today. We so desperately want to behold the Lamb of God today. And so we thank you for how your word points us to that Lamb, how your word points us to the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, meet us on these pages and these verses today and in the weeks to come. In your mighty and matchless name we pray, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat this morning. And I am so excited that you're at church today, excited to worship with you and excited to sing with you, uh, but excited to open to the gospel of John with you. And what we just read was the prologue, those first 18 verses of the gospel of John. Today we're going to focus on the first five verses I was intending to do as I got studying and as I got into it this week. I really kind of only did due diligence to maybe verse 1 and 2, maybe 3. We'll kind of get through verse 4 and 5 a little bit, but we can tack it on next week. We'll take three weeks to go through the prologue. But all that to say, we're embarking on a journey that I want to aim to cherish with you. We will not rush through the gospel of John, but we'll aim to savor it. And it's my prayer already that we would see the gospel of John, that it would be made fresh and anew to our spirits, not simply the words on the pages, but the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, that it would uh, be fresh and new to us as the Spirit illuminates once again some of these words that we are familiar with. But the big idea that I want to zero in with you on today in week one is this, the eternal word means... Jesus is the one true God. The eternal word means that Jesus is the one true God. And before we dive into the text, let me give you some background of the Gospel of John that I believe helps us frame our reading of it. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are the first three books in your New Testament. They're historically known as the synoptic Gospels because they give us a synopsis of the birth and the life and the ministry and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, you're hearing me say the Gospels. There, of course, is only one Gospel. You understand that. Uh, there's one Gospel. The message of the Gospel is that God is holy, man is wicked and sinful, Jesus is Lord and Savior, and I must repent and believe. If anybody preaches to you any Gospel besides that Gospel, you run the other direction. But in our Bibles, in the New Testament, we have these first four books that are traditionally known as the Gospels. And what they are is the same story, eyewitness accounts of the same message written to different audiences for different purposes. Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular are eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus from an earthly perspective. So Matthew is writing to Jews and the deeply religious, and some of the details would have been uh, very interesting to the Jews, and you had the Pharisees who were steeped in the religious laws, and they needed to repent and believe in the person of Jesus Christ. Mark wrote to the Romans who knew nothing of the scriptures, but they were drawn to action and power. 
So Mark doesn't really deal with the virgin birth and the genealogies and all of that. He just jumps to all these action-packed stories of Jesus uh, in society. And each of those stories show the power of Jesus, but also how Jesus meets all of our needs. This would have grabbed the attention of the Romans who were power-hungry. I even think about where Mark wrote uh, about the, the Romans and how they would lord their position over people. And Jesus said, this shouldn't be so with you, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. This was countercultural to the Romans. And then Luke, he was a Greek who wrote to the Greeks, and his gospel account is loaded with evidence for the skeptics and details that will fascinate the inquiring minds of philosophers, artists, and seekers of truth. But that brings us to the gospel according to John today, which is a little different. It would, be, it would not be categorized as a synopsis of the life of Jesus, but rather John is interested in giving us specific details surrounding one main idea. There's some things that I love about John and his writing. He writes some very deep truths, some very deep things that we'll study and, and draw out doctrinally in the Gospel of John. But he also says some things so wonderfully simple that even a child with childlike faith, can grasp the beauty of the gospel. But one thing that I love about John is he gives us the purpose statement of his book. He does that in his epistles too. In John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, it's on the screen. In my Bible, it has a header that says, the purpose of this book. And I think, well, thank you, John, for giving me the purpose of the book. He wrote this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So John's like, there's a lot of things that I'm not going to tell you that Jesus did. In fact, 90% of the gospel of John's content are not, is not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a very unique gospel. So there's a lot of things I didn't write about. But these are written, what I did write about, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John gives us specific details about Jesus, but from a heavenly perspective, because John wants us confronted with the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he wants every person reading his gospel to believe this life-changing, life-transforming reality. Now, John, he, he wrote the epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He was also given the divine Revelation of the end times, put in the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible. But in those writings, in all of John's four books, he wrote about love 80 times. Uh, in, in the Gospel of John, his name is not even there, but it's all, all often referred to as the apostle whom Jesus loved, which tells you th something about the humility of the apostle John. He didn't want his name uh, to be um, written he, he, he simply couldn't get over the fact that Jesus Christ loved him, the apostle whom Jesus loved. I love that title. And, and John was always uh, in awe of the fact that he could have a relationship with the God of glory through this person, Jesus Christ. It's the reason that we should be here this morning. We should be standing in awe of the love that God has for us. John wrote in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Are you overwhelmed by the love that God has for you? 
John wrote about it 80 times in his writings. He also wrote about the word truth 40 to- 45 times. Truth. John is concerned with us being encountered with the truth. But more than truth, more than love, 100 times he writes about belief. Believing is at the core, at, at the center of all of John's writings because John is an evangelist and John is concerned and burdened for your mind and heart to be captivated with the truth that Jesus is the one true God and believing his eternal deity is the only way to eternal life and a relationship of love with him. Now, the way John frames the gospel account, very creative, uh, and it helps us kind of understand the, the, the context of the whole book. It begins with the prologue, which we read this morning, and it's beautifully written, almost poetic. You could memorize it easier than some other big chunks. But then, when you get to John 2 through 12, John gives us a block of miraculous signs and controversies. John gives us a miraculous sign of Jesus that only a God-man could do, and each of them raise a controversy that force us to ask the question, what will I do with Jesus? You either believe he is God or you deny his deity. You will either accept that Jesus is God or you will remain dead in disbelief. But belief that transforms your life is at the core of all of the signs that John records in his Bible or in his gospel. And then when you get to the second half of the book of John, he deals with Jesus' final words to his apostles. He deals with the death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. And kind of all throughout that are these seven glorious I am statements, statements that only a God-man could make on the earth. And each of them are affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. So just as God declared, I am that I am in Exodus... Jesus declares in John, I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world, and I am the door, and I am the good shepherd, and I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And these are the kind of stories, claims, and details that John is after as he writes so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have eternal life. So that introduction and that purpose of these 21 chapters of beautiful good news can be seen if we study the entire book through the prologue. But even more specifically, if you study the entire book through John chapter 1, verse 1 today, you will have a, a wonderful grasp on the magnitude of the person of Jesus Christ that is able to save your soul. And so as we step into the word, let it grab your heart, let it grab your attention and lean in with joy this morning because this is everything for the believer. Point number one is this, the eternal word points to the Trinity. The eternal word points to the Trinity. Look at John 1 verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now this is a massive statement, a massive sentence as John begins his gospel account. John doesn't give us a genealogy of of mankind like the gospel of Matthew starts out. 
John doesn't give us any details of the virgin birth or the angels declaring that Christ is born or the shepherds running to see baby Jesus lying in a manger. John gives us a type of genealogy in verse 1, but one from a heavenly point of view. John's genealogy precedes human existence altogether, which makes total sense because the purpose of the book is that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, John, no doubt, having been a student of the Pentateuch and an eyewitness of Jesus himself, he brilliantly draws from Moses' literary start as he takes us as far back as human minds can comprehend. He takes us back to the beginning of the world, to the beginning of humanity, and to the beginning of the Bible, which is convenient for us because... In the fall, we studied Genesis, and you're just bubbling with joy and excitement because of that, right? And it was just a glorious time looking at the foundations of Scripture. But here's what Genesis 1 verse 1 says. It's on the screen. The first verse in all of the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We studied these pretty foundational truths When we looked at that verse in September and we pulled it apart, let me just quickly do it. We looked at in the beginning, God. That before anything existed, God was. And before there was anything that we know today, God was. And we can agree with philosophers that if nothing came from nothing, then something always existed. And that something from which everything that we know has existed was in the beginning. That something was Elohim the all-powerful, almighty God. We learned that in the beginning, God created. Elohim spoke, and mature creation followed. As we are going through that in the fall, I gave you the Hebrew word bahra, B-A-R-A, that God didn't need any ingredients, but he created the world and all that we know just simply by speaking it into existence. There were some people who said, I thought every time you said bahra, you were saying Bob Ross. Sure, In the beginning, God, Bob, rossed the heavens and the earth. It works. He he had a blank canvas. He didn't need a paintbrush. He didn't need paint. He didn't need all of that. He just spoke and creation followed. But we also learned that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth, that is simply a summarizing statement of everything that we know when we look at the universe, when we look at the world, when we look at our own lives. Everything came from God. So what Genesis 1-1 should do for you is tell you that there is a God, he is the all-sovereign ruler and owner, and nothing is impossible for him. But then I want you to remember the the next big faith item that we have to cross when we get to Genesis 1 verse 2. Look at it on the screen. Genesis 1-2 said, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So The second verse in the Bible zeroes in on planet Earth, which is an act of God's grace because he's going to focus his his life and redemption and a new heavens and new earth around planet Earth, which includes your life today. So the grace of God's on display already. But look at the second sentence in that verse. And the Spirit of God, capital Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God is capitalized because it not... It is not simply an extension of God's thought or an illusion of God's being, but rather it is a person of the Godhead. 
Remember I told you that if you get Genesis 1-1, if you can have faith to believe Genesis 1-1, then everything else in the Bible will be a piece of cake. Said that in September, probably a little bit hyperbolic. But if, if God truly is Elohim, the all-powerful creator of the ends of the earth, and he is outside of time and space, he is outside of human comprehension, and yet he's made himself knowable, God is outside of, of our logic and our reason, and yet he's given us everything that we need to know in order to think deeply about him. But Genesis 1-2 shows us that he is outside of the finite's mind, ability to understand and comprehend oneness or one. Even the Jews had a monotheistic religion because they said the God of Israel, the Lord our God, is one. And yes, Genesis 1-1 shows us that there is one true God, but Genesis 1-2 shows us that our God, our one God, is not alone in his oneness. And that brings us beautifully and masterfully to John chapter 1, verse 1, where pulling from Moses' writing of the first chapter of the Bible, he writes, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word, capital W, was with God, and the Word was God. Now, there are plenty of other places to draw from that point us to the Trinitarian nature of the one true God, but beautifully and simply, the apostle whom Jesus loved points us to the third member who was in the beginning with God. Just as grasping Genesis 1-1 will help you have faith in a God who can do anything, your grasp of John 1 verse 1 is the key to grasping the saving quality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the rest of John, as John continues, it's going to proclaim that the word or this person became flesh and he dwelt among us and he revealed the glory of God and he lived perfectly in grace and truth and he broke down every religious system showing that it's not enough and he showed that life's actually about a love relationship with the God of glory and he died a death he didn't deserve and he rose again from the dead and he ascended back into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father and all of that holds a lot more weight for us today if we understand it through the lens of John 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word. Not in the beginning God created the Word. Not in the beginning God formed the Word. Not in the beginning God spoke a Word. In the beginning was. And so John is declaring the eternal nature of the person of Jesus Christ. He always was and he always will be. And he is one with the Father, and he is God's Son who would become flesh, and he was in the beginning. John draws from the contents of Genesis 1, 1 through 2, and in all three verses we see each representative of our triune God. Just marvel at that for a moment. In Genesis 1, 1 we see Elohim, who is God the Father. In Genesis 1-2, we see the Spirit of God who, who was hovering over the face of the deep. He was pulsating with new life that was about to happen. Just as he was pulsating with new life there, he's pulsating over us today, recreating sinners into lives that emulate and reflect the glory of Christ. The Spirit of God is drawing us to the Father and in John 1.1, 1, 1, we see God the Word, Jesus the Christ, the Son 
of God, the long-awaited Messiah, who not only came at the proper time, but he was in the beginning with God, and he was God. There is one true God, and it's very much in line with what was plastered on the Jews' forehead and on their cloaks. The God of Israel, the Lord our God, is one But what the Jews struggled to grasp and even John's audience in the first century of the church struggled to grasp was that the one true God of Israel exists in three distinct persons. God the Father is holy and adopts us as his own. Jesus, the Son, dies a death he doesn't deserve and atones for the sins of mankind and lavishes his love on us that we might be redeemed and forgiven and so that God would no longer look on our sinfulness, but we would trade our sinfulness for the righteousness of Jesus as he becomes our sinfulness and sets us free. We also see God the Spirit indwells and seals and delivers the believer on to glory. The Trinity matters. The triune nature of our God matters. Ponder it. Think about it. Ask the Spirit to reveal and illuminate more and more to you. Don't just dismiss this important thing that Scripture is shouting at us and John is showing us in the first pages of his gospel, but to to miss it or dismiss it or minimize it is to miss the radical truth that a God of unity, harmony, and love existed and created so that we could join in their perfect union through the extravagant love poured out at the cross for all who believe. Your life means so much more than what you've accumulated here on the earth. You've been created for a purpose, and that purpose is to worship God the Father Almighty and to be joined into a love relationship and harmony and unity that existed before the foundation of the world. How do we know that God created the world out of love? Because he existed in perfect love in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. There was unity and there was submission to one another and sin has massively marred that for us. But if you are in Christ, you've been joined to a body. Jesus Christ is the head and the world is moving toward and trajecting toward a day when you will be joined to the perfect unity, harmony, and love of the Godhead. Just allow that to blow your mind this morning. I've thought about it this week. I think the Trinity is something that we, we probably can't comprehend and so we don't think deeply about it. I want to encourage you to ponder the truths of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'm in a phase with my, my boys. I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old boy. And we're talking, when I leave church, I ask them, you know, what did you learn today? Or at Bible study, what did you learn today? And they, they tell me, and it's usually like Jesus answers and the gospel's in there. And they usually, we usually try to get it to the gospel. And I'll say, you know, why did you need a Savior? Because I'm a sinner, Dad. And, and what did you need saved from my sin? And, and how did that happen? How do you get saved? Well, uh, he died on the cross for my sins. Who died on the cross for my sins? And my kids will say, God. I'll say, was it God? Did God, God the Father die for your sins? And they'll say, no, Jesus. And then we'll talk about the importance. What's the difference? What, how is Jesus God? And why is it important that Jesus, who is God, came to earth and died on the cross? Like these aspects of the Trinity 
are so important to our theology because it holds, the gospel holds so much more weight when we understand the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. That's what John wants to confront us with. I was thankful this week I was reading Martin Luther's sermons uh, from John, and he writes this about the Trinity. It's on the screen. This must be accepted by faith. No matter how clever, acute, and keen reason may be, it will never grasp and comprehend it. If it were susceptible to our wisdom, then God would not need to reveal it from heaven or proclaim it through Holy Scripture. So be governed by this fact and say, I believe and confess that there is one eternal God and at the same time three distinct persons, even though I cannot fathom and comprehend this, for Holy Scripture, which is God's word, says so, and I abide by what it states. Love that. And that is the kind of faith that you and I must have when it comes to the deep things of Scripture, when it comes to the things that we ponder about who Jesus is. If scripture states it, I believe it and I confess it by faith. That leads to the second point this morning and it's this, the eternal word points to divinity. Not only does it point to the Trinity, but it points to the divinity of Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you again, the first two verses. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now I need to talk to you about why John uses the term the word, as he begins the gospel. Clearly, John's speaking about a person. John is speaking about Jesus of Nazareth, who readers would have been familiar with because the teachings of Christ were spreading like wildfire, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus caused some ripples throughout history. Uh, But the Greek word for word is the term logos. Now, logos was a loaded term in the Greek philosophical world. See, there were other religions happening and rising up in this day and age, and logos was something that was pontificated on in a lot of these religions. So we had Stoicism, and later Paul gets to Greece, and and on, on Mars Hill he addresses the Stoics. But Stoicism says that logos represented the rational principle by which everything exists and which is the essence of the rational human soul. So this logos, this ethereal term, is where everything came from. Some thought that Paul or, or John may have been drawing from the dualism of Philo. So the philosopher Philo said this, Logos represented the ideal primal man from which all empirical human beings derived. There's no distinct personality in Logos, and it's definitely not something that became incarnate. So Logos is, again, just this ethereal thought. Everyone was thinking deeply and trying to rationalize where we came from. How did we get here? All the things that we answered in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, that's where philosophy has been tied up for many, many years. More generally, Logos referred to inner thought, reason, and even science. So by using the term Logos in the opening line of his gospel, John was hitting a large and various audience. By proclaiming what he does about Logos, it no doubt grabbed attention of Jews and non-believers and skeptics and even those who were antagonistic toward the message of Jesus Christ. But remember, John was writing so that all of these types of people could believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, they might have eternal life. 
So there's a lot wrapped up philosophically in the term logos, but so much more important is John's use of logos from a biblical point of view. Let me give you a quote that has helped me this week from D.A. Carson. I don't know if you've seen that, The Gospel According to John by D.A. Carson, the commentary that we're selling out in the lobby. Very helpful. Uh, There's a 110-page introduction You might want to skip over that and jump into the the verses. That's what I did this week, and it was really helpful. But here we go. God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title of God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. But if the expression would prove richest for Jewish readers... It would also resonate in the minds of some readers with entirely pagan backgrounds. In their case, however, they would soon discover that whatever they had understood the term to mean in the past, the author whose work they were then reading was forcing them into fresh thought. Everyone was all about deep thinking and deep rationalizing, and John brilliantly and simply uses their terminology to describe the person of Jesus Christ and confront them with a fresh thought. What will you do with Jesus of Nazareth? And John wants us face to face with the power and the will of God through his word. And there is no greater picture of the character and nature of God than in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. A.W. Pink, he says it this way. Jesus reveals God's mind Jesus expresses God's will, Jesus displays God's perfections, and Jesus exposes God's heart. What is God like? Look at the person of Jesus Christ. Who is God? What has he done in this world? Look at the person of Jesus Christ, how he lived, how he moved, how he acted, what he did for sinners. John's not concerned with what logos means to people from a philosophical, psychological, or pagan point of view. John wants every person confronted with the truth that the logos is the eternal son of God who came to reveal the father and save sinners. Therefore, every person has to answer the question, what will I do with Jesus? John's interpretation, the second person of the Trinity He's also in the beginning, which speaks of his eternality. But John proclaims he was with God, which speaks of the relational intimacy and community within the Trinity. Jesus was God's eternal fellow, there with him in the beginning. But also, John goes a little further for clarity's sake. He was not only with God, but he was God, which speaks of the deity of Jesus. Pretty clear, pretty explicit pretty simple, and he leaves no room for anyone to say that this word was there alongside God or was created by God or or was just another being or entity that God planned to use. He says that this word was God and was with God, and this helps us grasp the truth that Jesus is eternal, Jesus is in communion within the Godhead, and Jesus is, in fact, the one true God who can save people from their sins. Not simply a good teacher. Jesus is not simply a moral rabbi. He's not simply a significant prophet or a societal activist. Jesus is fully God. And by believing this, it is the entry point of the good news that leads to the only hope of eternal life with him. Verse 2, John writes, 
He was in the beginning with God. He's like, it may sound hard to comprehend, but let me make it even more simple for you. I don't know if you could say any deeper truths in a, such a simple way as John does in the first two verses of John chapter 1. But Jesus' divinity is displayed in the togetherness with God the Father before the world and in his distinct oneness as God before the world. And that takes us to point number three this morning, which is this. The eternal word points to lordship. The eternal word points to lordship. Look at verse three. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. This again is very intentional. The selection of words that John uses. In the first three verses, he addresses issues about Jesus that make or break the gospel and that we're all under attack. John dresses the eternality of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, and the lordship of Jesus. And there's several reasons why I would tell you, the follower of Christ, or, or any skeptic, anyone who's seeking or searching in the room, there's many reasons I would tell you to ponder the divinity, the eternality, the trinity, and the lordship of Christ. But one reason relevant to John's day is that to miss the deity of Christ within the trinity is to fall prey to heresy and miss the gospel altogether. You can be so close but if you don't believe in the person of Jesus Christ who was in the beginning with God and was God, then you've got nothing. And on the heels of John's gospel would come the teachings of Arius, where we get Arianism. And Arianism proclaims that Christ is not truly divine, but a created being. And that changes everything if Jesus was created. Because you were created. What makes him so much more significant than you. By the second and third generation, we get the heresy of modalism. One God who has three modes, not one God existing in three distinct persons. That's wrong. That's off. You fast forward into our day and age, and we have Jehovah Witnesses who deny the Trinity, and they believe that Jesus was created by Jehovah as the archangel Michael before the physical world existed and is lesser, though mighty, God. I mean, you, you've encountered Jehovah Witnesses. You've had conversations. And you've probably even said, is there, are, 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 do we have anything, uh, any differences? Is that just like a different denomination or thing? And they're such kind people and they're great evangelists. And yet to be wrong and to miss the divinity and the eternality of Christ is to have nothing. Mormonism is the same. Jesus does not share the same eternal nature as God the Father in Mormonism. Jesus may be divine, but his is a derivative divinity. So Mormon theology teaches, in the words of Joseph Smith, that Jesus Christ is God the second, the Redeemer. And we can quote the same passages of Scripture and memorize the same things and talk about it all the same way. And yes, we need saved from our sins. But if you miss the person of Jesus who was in the beginning with God and was God from the start then you miss the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that can change your life forever, that can transform your life into something new. Many today want to claim that all roads lead to God, but the gospel of John will help us see that only Jesus leads to God, and believing this is believing in the triune, divine, eternal nature of Jesus as Lord of all. He was not created because Jesus was the creator. 
And it says he created all things. All things were made through him. Not some things, not certain things. All things were made through Jesus. And so John again gives us insight back to Genesis chapter 1 that when Elohim spoke, Jesus, who is the perfect revelation of God the Father, began to create. And John aims to make it so blatantly clear for us that he gives us the antithesis to his statement, without him was not anything made that was made. So with Jesus, you get creation. Without Jesus, you've got nothing. And that preaches from a creationism point of view, but also from a salvific point of view this morning, because without Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Without Jesus, you are dead, and you cannot save yourself. There's not enough good deeds that you can do to get to God. But with Jesus as the eternal word, you can be recreated into his masterpiece and child. And if Jesus is the creator of all things, then he is Lord over all things. And for him to be Lord means that he is the king, he is the sustainer, and he is God. His creation praises him. His creation answers to him. His creation exists because of him. His creation is saved through him. And that absolutely includes you. And the only way to come to Jesus is on his terms And his terms are that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So there's some deep things to contemplate, but absolutely necessary things. No doubt these things can be hard to comprehend, but if you could fully comprehend your God, then he is not big enough. We we tend to comprehend that which we could construct and we don't simply wanna construct our own gods in this life nor do we want to construct our own way of getting to God. That's how all religions and cults come into play because we want to create a system that makes us feel good in our works and therefore we can climb the ladder of success and get to God. That's not how it works. You need to believe that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he created all things. Therefore, he is king and ruler of all. And man, the gospel comes alive when that God comes to this earth and wraps himself in flesh like a human being and dies a brutal death that you deserve and defeats that death by rising from the dead. Would you look at verse four and five? We'll talk a little more about these verses as we continue on in the prologue next week. But just listen to them. In him, in this Word who was in the beginning and was God and was with God. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I've been to uh, several funerals over the last two months. And uh, yesterday we had a funeral in this room for Uh, Just the tragic death of a 14-year-old boy who was in our student ministry, the Cavero family, was so thankful for the way Brock's life was honored and for how the gospel went out. Thankful for Jono leading many of our parents and students and for Pastor Wilson who shared the gospel beautifully yesterday. Uh, Tomorrow there's a funeral here at the church for Dave Starks. Uh, when I got here, Dave, uh, when we, whenever Gospel City moved to Cornerstone, Dave was here 
and uh, Dave was in his retired years. He was 88 years old, grandpa to the Abbots and uh, other and related to the Klutzings. Uh, Dave, in his retired years, used his life to live sent for the glory of Christ to the nations. Uh, he would go to other countries and share the gospel and take Bibles there and just such an inspiration. And so tomorrow we'll rejoice in his homecoming. But, you know, as I've gone to these funerals over the past couple months and been a part of them, uh, Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to a funeral than a party. Uh, a party will probably do more for you um, as terms of fun, but a funeral causes you to think about what really matters. A funeral does what John does for us. It gets our head above the noise and the junk of this world and onto eternal things and eternal questions. And what I've noticed about funerals, everybody is confronted with life and death. At a funeral, we weep and we cry and we get emotional when life ceases to exist, whenever life is stamped out, whenever someone that we love is gone. And it causes us to think deeply about what will happen to me when I die because I am getting older and I am breaking down and the world is breaking down and, and boy, I, I don't know how many days I have left and scripture proclaims that life is but a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And yet John chapter one, verse four, after being confronted with this person who is the God of glory that was in the beginning, it says, in him, in the word, in Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. In Jesus, you can have life today, life beyond the grave. Life that lights up your world, lights up your life, gives you the joy of Jesus Christ, the joy of knowing God. It says that in him was light and light shines in the darkness. That was true at creation because in verse three of Genesis chapter one, God spoke and he said, let there be light and planet Earth lit up. And it wasn't until four days later that God created the sun, but he didn't need a sun because the lamp of eternity was there. John proclaimed it. Jesus was there. And as God spoke, his light, his glory was the revelation of God to planet Earth. And he came to us so that he could light up your life and so that you could overcome the darkness through Jesus Christ. Is the world getting darker? Is the world getting more evil? Is the world going downhill? Absolutely, but Jesus has overcome the world and in him is life and in him is light. Let's stand to our feet together and let's pray. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ I thank you for the opportunity, for the privilege, God, of coming here and exalting the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I thank you that there is one God and that you're so vast and that you're so big that our minds can't fully comprehend you and yet you've invited us to ponder you. You've invited us to know you. You invited us to learn more of you. Lord, as we ponder God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as we ponder the eternal nature of Jesus who was in the beginning and who purposed to come and to die for us, would it hold a new weight in our lives, in our hearts today? 
Would we be so overwhelmed with the power of the gospel that has saved us? We're so undeserving. And you, Jesus, you were so undeserving of the death that you got. And yet you became sin so that we could become your righteousness. We owe you our lives. We owe you everything. We owe you. And yet you simply invite us to come and to share in your sufferings and to be made new, not because of any works of righteousness that we have done, but because of the righteousness of Christ. What an amazing reality the gospel is. Lord, as we contemplate it and as we, we, we cherish your word in this place, would we be transformed from the inside out that we might be worshipers of you.